I'm Daniel Chacon. Welcome to Words on a Wire. Today, I have a very special guest. He's not a poet. He's not a fiction writer, a playwright, a memoirist. He is a writer, philosopher, and he just came out with a best-selling book called Galileo's Error, Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness. And in this book, he is doing, among other things, explaining panpsychism. What is panpsychism? It is the idea that perhaps one of the fundamental elements of reality, of the universe, rather than being time and space or matter, is consciousness itself. He's a very interesting philosopher, professor in the UK, and one of, the, frankly, one of the most important philosophers of our time. I'm very, very excited to have a conversation with Philip Goff. So stick around. Words on a wire. Words on a wire. 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 There we go. Hello. Hi. Oh, it looks yeah, like you, you have a magical crown on your head. <laughs> <laughs> This is my shirt. Um, it actually looks like s- spots, but if you look very closely, it's a sort It's a sorted poultry. Oh, it's poultry! Shirt. I thought it was whales. Cool. I got a whales. keeping a curious shirt on with curious George. Very good. Very good. I like it. Absolutely. That's that's what's important for our philosophers and poets alike, right? Curiosity. Inside. So you're a poet. Well, when I use the term poets, I don't like to make a distinction between poets and fiction writers. All right. I, uh, I'm a fiction writer. Most all my books are in fiction, but, um, but I like to use the term poets because there was a certain point, like natural philosophy and philosophy, where it was split asunder. Right. So, so I like to say poets to That's indicate great. anybody who, use, who follows language to arrive at... Uh, some sort of work of art or something, uh, 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 you know, something ineffable, I guess. I should yeah. call scientists philosophers. By the yeah, same absolutely. Way. I think so. And I think one of the things your book is doing is uh, it's bringing science back to philosophy where I think it needs to be, frankly. That's the hope. Yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, why don't we just start off, if you don't mind, you're the very first philosopher I've had on the show. I've been doing this show for 11 years and I've had poets and I've had fiction writers. I've actually even had a few neuroscientists and a few physicists on the show uh, because occasionally I like to dabble in those kind of uh, 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 explanations of reality, uh-huh. uh, which I find incredibly uh, liberating for the imagination when I read a book uh, like yours. But you're the first philosopher I've ever had. So maybe if we could start off by talking about how does one become a philosopher? <laughs> oh, well, that's fine. Well, I feel honored to be the first philosopher on the podcast. Um, <clears throat> well, I guess there aren't many professional philosophers outside of academia, so right. although, although there are some. Right. No, there are there are there are a few who make a profession just through writing philosophy, but I guess principally, if if you're a professional philosopher, it's 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 an academic post like any other. But um, I guess in my case, you know, I've just always been 
totally obsessed with philosophy as far back as I can remember. And my parents tell me when I was four, I asked, why are we here? But <laughs> actually, actually, we had just moved house. So uh -huh. I, I think maybe I was just confused about the location. Oh, that's but funny. yeah, I guess I've always been, you know, I think for me, it's sort of an obsession about kind of how things fit together. Uh -huh. Like so, for example, I, I was raised Catholic, and I, at a very young age, again, I remember asking the priest, you know, where were Adam and Eve when the Big Bang happened? So it was sort of like right. I was hearing these two stories of our origins, and um, you know, how do they fit together? You know, so it's another thing. Another thing that frustrated me is, kid, um, the fact that Superman. This might sound kind of ridiculous, but I think it expresses the fact that Superman could push a planet with ease, but mm -hmm. struggled a bit to lift a van. And, you know, he could lift a van. Uh -huh. but he, right. I said, it doesn't make sense. You know, it doesn't fit right, together. Right. Like an urge to fit things together. I think actually I wanted, to, I thought I wanted to be a physicist. <clears throat> I was yeah. into, you know, black holes and, you know, the start of the universe and stuff. And, and my parents actually sent me to a family friend who was a physicist uh to talk to him about physics when i was quite ill but uh but i was just asking questions like but does god exist <laughs> and he was right. like i think you're in the wrong place here so so yeah i mean nonetheless you 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 very obviously have dabbled in physics you know you seem to be able to explain a lot when it comes to uh like for example you can talk about entanglement and Schrodinger's equation and all these different metaphors of physics. So how, how deeply have you gone into it? And, and have you gone as far as the math or mostly the, the, the I guess what we could call the, the metaphors of, uh, of physics? No, actually one of my biggest regrets in life was, was not doing math or mm. maths as mm. we call it past the age of 16 and that is a, a huge regret for me I was you know kind of I actually wanted to drop out of school and become a rock star so I didn't I didn't really <laughs> take any serious subjects and um it's a miracle it is a miracle I carried on into academia actually but but I guess yeah I mean I've talked a lot to physicists of um and philosophers of physics the Barry Lower at Rutgers and physicists like Sean Carroll and mm -hmm. Lee Smolin I'm actually quite pleased there's going to be a special issue of the Journal of Consciousness Studies public, being published in October, which is going to be essays in response to my book, Galileo's Oh, Era, really? Wow. Today. And it, but it's going to be really interdisciplinary. So it's not just philosophers. There are also physicists like Carlo Rovelli, mm -hmm. uh, Sean Carroll, uh, Lee Smolin, <clears throat> uh, some neuroscientists like Christoph Koch, and also some theologians, actually. Uh, so, um, so it's going to be really interesting. And yeah, I mean, I mean, Sean Carroll's amazing. You know, we, he's a totally opposite viewpoint to me. He's 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 not a panpsychist like I am, but um, you know, really gets the philosophy. I mean, this is the problem. Everything's so specialized these days. Right. It's hard to. I'm jealous of people in the 17th century where you could <laughs> understand the cutting edge philosophy and science and mathematics. But you know, it's so specialized. Right. It's really hard to know enough about all these things to 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 connect them up um so but as i'm people like sean carroll are really trying to connect mm. things up and actually elise molan who's a leading physicist is inclined to think that actually a theory of consciousness in a panpsychist vein may actually shed light on some of these deep 
mysteries in physics, like how to reconcile right. relativity and quantum mechanics. So, and he's talking about that in this special issue. So that's um, really interesting. So yeah, so I, I guess I feel from talking to physicists and philosophers of physics, I've I've got a grip on um, the, the philosophical issues right. behind physics, you know, if not the mathematical details. Well, it seems to me that the thing that philosophy, physics, and neuroscience have in common, and I would even include poetry in this, although that might be a little bit harder to justify, is that there is this search for unity. You know, like, yeah. they, like everybody wants to know, you know, uh, is there a God particle or is there a consciousness, you know? Uh, and so it yeah. seems like these three... Uh, uh, fields are, are completely inseparable. You can't have one without the other. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess I suppose it depends on <clears throat> your view of consciousness. Someone I um, have quite um, heated debates on Twitter with is, is, is the neurophilosopher Patricia Churchland. There was, there was an article in the um, Irish Times actually about a, about a Twitter argument we had. That was oh, really? So she's, she's of the opinion, you know, we just stop all this philosophy nonsense, just do the neuroscience. It's just mm, a, right. it's just yeah. a, an emergent feature of the brain. You know, stop wasting your time with all this. She's a materialist. <laughs> yeah, she, she's quite a hard commentator. Well, she 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 made her name back in the eighties uh, with her husband Paul Churchland for defending eliminative materialism, mm -hmm. the view that one day neuroscience will just replace talk of mind and consciousness. So we'll no mm -hmm. longer talk of you know beliefs and desires and hopes and fears. Mm -hmm. We'll just talk about physical processes in the brain. I think she's, she's gone back from that a little bit now, but that, that, that was, that was famous position. She was famous for defending. Um, uh, she's actually just agreed to come on, on my podcast, mind chat actually, which is, should be interesting where we could actually, we'll probably be really polite to each other actually, when we're actually, oh, I'm sure. Face -face. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So coming back, sorry, I've got going in a little bit of a long that's okay wind. that's what that's what we do when we follow language we go into all kinds of different beautiful <laughs> geometric shapes <laughs> coming back from the detour so you know if you have that kind of view then probably as she often says you know physics is just totally irrelevant but if like <laughs> me actually you think consciousness is is in some mm -hmm. sense a fundamental feature of reality and and that we need to rethink our conception of science in order to deal with consciousness, then you're really going to have to be doing physics. So I think, you know, right. we really need, we do really need to deal with consciousness. We do really need to bring together philosophers, neuroscientists, and physicists right. to really, really make progress on this. Um, but also with literature, I mean, I think if you're just trying to understand consciousness itself, I think the best way to do that is literature. You know, read James Joyce. Because consciousness is nothing other than what it's like to be a human being, what it's like to adopt the perspective of a human being. So if that's your interest, don't talk to a philosopher to, you know, read some literature. I think the role of the philosopher is what we've talked about already, you know, how that fits into the scientific story, how the story of the human being from the inside, feelings and experiences, colors, sounds, smells, tastes, how that story of the human being from the inside fits together with the story science gives us of the body and the brain from the outside. And we're still sort of, there's still no consensus on how exactly we right. 
solve that ancient problem, which is, I guess, the mind-body problem. You know, I, I was uh, reading, I think it was, I could be wrong because my memory isn't, um, I don't store facts. <laughs> I store meaning, I guess you could say. Uh, but uh, I think it was Alconan Goldberg's uh, Wisdom Paradox, uh, which is really an interesting book that argues that wisdom is essentially, you know, years of pattern accumulation. And, you know, after after a while, rather than, you know, approach a problem, an immediate pattern comes to you and you understand how to how to deal with it. But one of the things that he suggested is that uh, no matter how in, in, engaged you are in science or philosophy, that you should read a novel, at least, you know, uh, uh, on a very regular basis. And I think that's kind of reinforcing what you're saying about that, because a novel is consciousness of, of characters or like Philip Pullman said in that wonderful interview you had with him. I think your publisher put you in a room with Philip Pullman. Uh, he calls that the narrator a sprite, <laughs> right? This voice that can, you know, go from place to place. But one of the things that I guess uh, that uh, really impressed me about that conversation you had with him was how you pointed out a passage in uh, his Dark Materials uh, where the doctor is talking about matter and dark, or I guess the idea is dark matter, but they call it dust, right? For her, it's yeah. dark matter, but she's having this conversation with dark matter. And, uh, and she asked it, uh, you know, are you matter or are you spirit? Are you angels, I think it was. So you could probably explain it uh, better. Can you talk a little bit about what you said and, and how that relates to your work? Yeah, well, actually, it wasn't the publisher who hooked us up. Actually, we hooked up on Twitter again, actually. Oh, uh, really? I, I just noticed he was following me on Twitter, actually. And uh, we, well, oh, he, nice. <laughs> he, he in, 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 broke into some philosophical dispute I was having with, uh, uh -huh. well, a good friend of mine, Keith Frankish, who's a philosopher who thinks consciousness doesn't exist. So, right, uh, right. We, An illusion. <laughs> yeah, we both agree that... Uh, our conventional scientific approach can't account for consciousness. So my response to that is to say, well, we need to change our scientific approach. Whereas his response is to say, well, it doesn't exist. It's just like right, right. magic or fairy dust or something. And actually, but actually, we, we, we're doing a, a, this podcast mind chat together, interviewing scientists and philosophers oh. of consciousness. And, you know, in the spirit of reaching out across, you know, in our polarized times, reaching out across, you know, these disagreements and, um, but um, yes, yeah, so so Philip Pullman entered into that dispute, and then and then we just started messaging and stuff, and and decided to have that public conversation. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so so just look. So actually, I mean, I read. <clears throat> excuse me, I've got a bit of a sore throat. I read um, his dark materials when I was quite young, and then when I, after I hooked up with Philip Pullman, I, you know, I looked back at it in, in preparation for our conversation. And I was amazed to find certain lines that um, that really see, see, seem to capture my position. Um, or, so, well, maybe as a background, the, the, re the reason there's been a resurgence of interest in the view I defend, known as panpsychism, right. is due to um, the rediscovery of, of certain really important work from the 1920s by the, um, the philosopher Bertrand Russell, and also the scientist Arthur Eddington developed these ideas as well. And they were kind of forgotten about for a long time, but in the last decade or 15 years, they've 
recently been rediscovered and causing quite a lot of excitement in academic philosophy. So, um, so their, their starting point was, which sounds kind of paradoxical when you first hear it, their starting point was physics doesn't really tell us what matter is. Uh, and, I, you know, when I actually first heard that, right. I thought that's ridiculous. You know, you, you study physics, you learn about space and time right. and matter. But their insight was actually, when you really look at what physics is telling us, it's just telling us what stuff does. It's just telling us about behavior, things like mass, charge, accelerate, uh, mass, charge. These things are totally defined in terms of attraction, repulsion, resistance to acceleration. It's all about what stuff does. Uh, and yet, intuitively, at least, you know, there's more to what something does that, than, than what it is. So I sometimes right. like give um, a chess piece analogy. If you're, if you're playing chess, you're interested in what the pieces do, you know, what moves you can make, what pieces you can take. But if you're someone who collects high-end luxury chess pieces, then you're interested in the substance of the pieces themselves. You know, you want pieces made of gold or silver rather than plastic or cheap metal. So this is what you philosophers sometimes call in this context, the intrinsic nature of a thing, you know, what it is considered independently of what it does. It's isness. Um, so yeah. So coming back to fundamental particles, physics gives us really rich information about what they do, attraction, repulsion, resistance, acceleration, but it's just totally silent on their intrinsic nature. So physics tells us what an electron does, but not what it is. Right, right. Um, sometimes called the problem of intrinsic natures. So the, so the genius of Russell and Eddington, I think, in the 1920s was to connect this to the problem of consciousness and to bring these two problems together. So on the one hand, science is, is, is just giving us a purely uh, quantitative description of the brain and seems to leave out the qualities of our experience, the colors, the sounds, right. the smells, and the taste. On the other hand, science is giving us this purely behavioral description of matter and leaving us leaving out its in, intrinsic nature. Right. So they kind of brought these together and formulated the bold hypothesis that, well, maybe the qualities of experience are the intrinsic nature of matter. So maybe, so it's it's sort of like, there's this hole in science. It's just telling us what stuff does, not what it is. We're looking for a place for consciousness in our scientific story. We've got this hole. Maybe we can put consciousness in the hole. So the result is a kind of panpsychism that consciousness pervades the universe and is a fundamental feature of it. But it's not, it's sort of panpsychism stripped of any mystical or supernatural connotations. The idea that it's just matter, particles or fields but it can be described from two perspectives. Physical science describes it from the out, from the outside in terms of its behavior, right. but from the inside in terms of its intrinsic nature, it's constituted of forms of consciousness. Um, we're, we're kind of, that's long winded, but no, no. I, I, Philip, coming back to Philip Pullman, oh, I'll have to remember the exact line now, but when, so when this character is talking to dust, it's sort of through a computer, it's a, this long winded setup. And as you say, she says, she says, are you, are you, are you spirit or matter? And they say something like, you'd have to, I can't remember the exact quote. In, in, in our, in our being, we are spirit. In our action, we are matter. Spirit nice. and matter are one. 
And that just, right. wow, that just sort of totally sums up. Right. You could take action and, and replace it with behavior. <laughs> yeah. 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 I can't remember what the exact word was now. Maybe, maybe it was behavior. But on, on the, the recent HBO series as well, they 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 had that line. At a, yeah, to... I saw that. Yeah, that's for, that was my introduction to to Philip Pullman. I'd never heard of him before, but my wife was has read all his books, and so she encouraged me to watch that uh, that yeah. series. I haven't read the books yet, but it seems like we're we're kind of entering into Galileo's error through a side door, and so maybe we could go back to just uh, talking. Uh, Introducing the book itself, it's, the title is Galileo's Error, Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness. And we'll get to the, the consciousness part, but can we talk a little bit about the meaning of, of the title? What was the error that Galileo made that is still <laughs> uh, uh, affecting now science and philosophy today? Yeah, I think it's uh, Galileo's to blame for all of this, really. <laughs> um, yeah, so... Well, I mean, I think Galileo is known as the father of modern science, and we think of him as this great experimental scientist, which of course he was, but he was also a philosopher, and right. people forget there's a philosophy behind science, and that was pretty much completely concocted by Galileo at the, the start of the scientific revolution. I think we, we still, it's a, it's a philosophy we still operate with today. So because before Galileo, uh, people following Aristotle thought that the physical world was filled with qualities. So there's sort of colors on the surfaces of objects, sounds and smells floating through the air, tastes actually inside food. But Galileo wanted science to be totally mathematical. Okay. And the problem there was these qualities because it, it doesn't seem like you can capture these qualities in the purely quantitative language of mathematics, you know, you, an equation can't capture that deep red you experience when you watch the setting sun. So Galileo had to get around this by proposing, as a philosopher, a radically new philosophical worldview. <clears throat> and according to this, um, so this is an important part of the scientific revolution. It wasn't just moving to a more experimental method and the great discoveries like that the earth goes around the sun rather than vice versa. It was also this radically new philosophical worldview. So according to this worldview, <clears throat> excuse me, the qualities aren't really out there in the physical world. They're just in consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. So that if you're looking at a tomato or tomato, as you guys say, that the, the, the redness isn't really on the surface of the tomato. It's in the consciousness of the person looking at it or the spiciness of paprika isn't really inside the paprika it's in the consciousness of the person eating it so in this way galileo strips the physical world of these qualities puts them all in consciousness and says right that's outside of the domain of science that's in what he called the animated body so he thought mm -hmm. it's a sort of supernatural animation to the body where these qualities exist so you get rid of all the qualities, you can describe everything else in mathematics. And this is the start of mathematical physics. Um, so in, you know, in Galileo's worldview, there's this huge divide between these two domains, the quantitative domain of science and the qualitative domain of consciousness. Um, and, so, and so Galileo effectively gave 
science, science, a narrow, limited, focused task. And that's gone really well, you know? And right, like, absolutely. Like you say, it gave us our cell phones. It gave us so much yeah. that, that we use today. Because we could then describe the physical world in mathematics. And how and things so I think, behave. Yeah. I think now that, that we're in a phase of history People always think they're at the end of history, but you know, I think we're in a right. phase of history where people are so blown away by how well that's gone. And you know, the visceral effect technology has it's like, wow, that we think that's everything. That's everything. Of course, and it's of course one day going to explain consciousness. We've no idea how yet, but one day it will. But that's just, I think, misunderstanding the history of science. Yes, it's gone very well, physical science, but it's gone very well precisely because right. it was designed to exclude consciousness. You know, and the fact that it's gone so well since it put consciousness outside of the domain of inquiry, you know, doesn't mean it's going to be able to do well when consciousness is brought back in. So, you know, I think if Galileo were to time travel to the present day and hear about this problem of explaining consciousness in the terms of physical science, he'd say... Of course you can't do that. I designed physical science to exclude consciousness. That's the whole point. So, yeah. So, so it's just, I mean, I think I, as a, as a professional academic philosopher, I spend a lot of time with fiddly technical arguments, which I think is important, but mm -hmm. I kind of think they never really persuade anyone. What really persuades people are the, the big picture narratives. I think what persuades people to be materialists, the position I reject is God, science is incredible. <laughs> and what I'm trying to get people to see is, is another way of looking at the history of science. Yes, it's, it's gone well, but it's gone well because it was, it's always been aimed at a, a quite limited task and it's explicitly not supposed to be a total theory of reality. That's and so here we get to the hard problem of uh, neuroscience. And the hard problem of neuroscience is how to unify the body and the mind, uh, you know, consciousness with the brain. Uh, and there are so many arguments and nobody is agreeing right now. They're just incredible, incredible fighting. And I understand there's even been a history of academic uh, myopia where, um, you know, certain departments wouldn't even want you to consider consciousness as a, as a, as a legitimate field of studies, uh, certain neuroscience uh, departments. But it's never going to be put off the table. You can't unify reality without unifying consciousness and, and you know, and uh, uh, the mind. So we have the hard problem. And the hard problem, the way you outline it, which I think is, by the way, I love this book because I don't understand much about science, but I understand your book. And so if you wrote this for people like me, it's very successful because I can access the ideas very easily. Uh, it's a, and it's a fantastic read. But you have, the, the problem's not going away. And you outline three different approaches and we'll get to panpsychism, which I think is brilliant. Uh, and probably the only solution if we're ever gonna figure out the hard problem. But what are the other two and, and why do you think that they're not very helpful? Yeah, thank, that's, <coughs> excuse me. Well, that's, that's really lovely to hear because that, you know, it's exactly, what I was trying to do to try and get at, get out to a broader audience and philosophers don't do this enough. And I think maybe it's because we're trained to try to produce these watertight arguments and you inevitably, right. you know, you, you then go into all technicalities and cover all objections and it gets really complicated. Right. And, and so actually the reason I felt comfortable with doing this is because I'd, 
already written my academic book in 2017, Consciousness and Fundamental Reality. So, because I think if you're going to write for a general audience, you've got to leave out some of the details. Right. Um, but I think people feel nervous. They think, oh no, people will think I've got a terrible argument because I haven't filled in all the details. And, right. Um, but anyway, yeah. So, so the hard problem of consciousness, this ch challenge of understanding how the brain produces consciousness, this inner world of colors and sounds and smells and tastes and, you know, the, the great progress we've made in understanding the brain in the last few decades doesn't seem to have helped mm. one iota in dealing with that. So, yeah, when, when I studied philosophy in the dying embers of the 20th century, we were taught, yeah, basically there are, there are two options here. Either you're a, a materialist, which is roughly the idea that we can just explain consciousness in terms of the electrochemical signaling of the brain, or dualism, the view that consciousness is non-physical, somehow separate from the physical workings of the body and the brain. And I, I mean, I, I just came to think that, you know, both of these views, I initially wanted to be the materialist and defended that view. Well, that's, that's the scientific option, but I just came to see it's, 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 I, I love that statement. I wanted to be a materialist, uh, but but something led you away from it, and and uh, I imagine that's just following the 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 logic, following you know yeah. logical language. I suppose I, I'm not sure. I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's really hard, isn't it, to just the Enlightenment aim is just to you know follow the arguments and the evidence where they lead, but it's you know it's pretty hard to do that as most people get invested in in a certain viewpoint and it becomes part of their identity. You know, people talk oh, about religion absolutely. as a crutch, but people talk about religion as a crutch, but I think a certain kind of scientism, a certain view of how science is supposed to be, you know, right, also right. Becomes part of your identity and, you know, um, <clears throat> but yeah, so I guess, I mean, it's a big debate, but I think that, that the core of the problem in materialism, I think is that physical science works with a, a purely quantitative vocabulary right. since Galileo. That was Galileo's decision, his declaration. Yeah, okay. Whereas consciousness is an essentially qualitative, quality-involving phenomenon. If you th you know think about right. the Absolutely. smell of coffee, the taste of mint, the redness of a sunset, colors, the, the, the juiciness of a carne asada burrito. Absolutely. How can science explain that? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So these kinds of um, qualities that characterize every second of waking life. And I think, you know, you just can't capture those kinds of qualities right. in the purely quantitative language of neuroscience. You know, if you could, you could convey to a blind neuroscientist what it's like to see color. And oh, that, that, Blind Mary. That's that brings up Blind Mary, which is a wonderful chapter. You don't need to go into it right now, but it's a wonderful explanation of what you're talking about. Uh, uh, colorblind Mary. Yeah, uh, that's so that's one of the important thought experiments and, uh, and arguments here that's much discussed. There's, there's a whole book of essays on it called Something About Mary, which is literature. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, just to without going into the technical details of that, I mean, I guess the way I would put it is. So there's a, it's a sort of descriptive, you're, you're a writer, you're into writing, that there's a descriptive limitation, an expressive limitation to neuroscience, that this quantitative austere vocabulary can't convey the qualities of experience. So why does that matter? Because I think that descriptive limitation entails an explanatory limitation. 
Because if, if suppose I wanted to explain consciousness in terms of the, in terms of neuroscience, what I'd have to do in writing my theory, I'd have to <clears throat> first convey those qualities, the colors, the sounds, the smells, the tastes, describe them in the language of neuroscience and then analyze them in terms of more fundamental physical processes. Right. If you can't even convey them, you can't explain them. You know, the, the, the whole explanatory project doesn't get off the ground. So that's the simple way, you know, the way I like to introduce it. There's a, a descriptive limitation that I think entails an explanatory limitation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I really think it's just, it, you know, I, I, it's just not a coherent project to try and right. explain qualitative consciousness in this purely quantitative vocabulary. Oh, just, and just finally, linking back to Galileo, I think we, we, we should have expected our current, you know, this, our current scientific approach to, to have this difficulty, but it, cause it was kind of built in from the start. I think Galileo, I mean, I've got this provocative title, Galileo's era, but I think Galileo is much more clued up on these things than we are right, now. Yeah, yeah. We don't really need to go too much into to, to dualism, uh, you know, which is the idea that the mind and the body are are separate. And these are probably, the majority of the people probably hold this idea to be true, that there's some, they have a soul, there's something eternal about them. They're not just this physical organism. Uh, but... Uh, I, I would like to get into panpsychism, your version, particular version of panpsychism. But before we do that, I have to ask you a question. As a writer, uh, I know that oftentimes just following the rhythm of the language, following the voice often leads us to insights that we didn't even know we had or that we were capable of. And we are sometimes stunned by what happens at the end of a sentence. We go, whoa. And I'm wondering, in your writing process, does that happen where you're following language and it perhaps leads you down pathways that you didn't expect? Are there surprises uh, that happen based on following rhythm or voice? I think I'm going to disappoint you, actually. I think because <laughs> Please do. I'm not one of these writers who sort of, starts writing and and in general uh-huh. what i do is i go for a long walk and i plan exactly what i'm right. going to write uh-huh. and i just i just write it i just write it and then what what i love i mean i hate blank pages actually but i, I love going over you know once you've got it there going over. but i mean i suppose that's because um i you know my aim is not fundamentally is is not to create something beautiful, although I hope it is beautiful. It's you know to convey a certain idea and a certain argument. But I think I I think I have developed I hope a sense of rhythm. So I think I bring in the the rhythm and right. you know afterwards I just get it all out there on the page and then and then spend time kind of shaping it and getting the rhythm to get it more beautiful and accessible and nice language. And, and I quite enjoy that, but I think, it, so I do, you know, I, I do like crafting it in that sense, but in terms of, as a philosopher, in terms of those kind of creative journeys and surprise, right. I think I find that more just thinking and, you know, going for long walks and, you know, I mean, I'm just thinking about it all the time really. Right, and, right. And, um, I mean, I'm continuously kind of um, cross-examining myself, you know, imagining, how my opponent would tear apart the argument, you know. Well, you know so I, I wonder. I w- you know, maybe maybe that's a a better way to understand it when you're walking. And you know, because writers, we take walks 
too. We, it's fundamental to our whole experience. And as we're walking, we're, you know, we might be following an idea. And there's, uh, I think, enough evidence that there is a, a, a thinker's high, you know, which is very similar to a runner's high, right? Where you're, you're in that space for long enough to where suddenly it's like, whoa, here's a, you know, here's a, here's a revelation. And maybe that's the surprise that I'm trying to get at as opposed to actual writing. Maybe it's more yeah. thinking. That I think that's right. I think that captures it very well. I had this just yesterday, actually, where I'm co-writing a, a response piece to the to the to the the duelist Martina Nida Rumlin, actually, for a volume who's um, in the University of Freiburg. And she's a great philosopher, but it's very dense, very dense. Um, complicated writing and and oh. um, and I was just had to go for a long walk and it, you know it starts off painful and like the analogy to the athlete is good you know I'm like I don't want to think about this it's too hard <laughs> I can't really get mad around this and just thinking and then you know you sort of pick up speed and then like, I know what I'm doing with this I know where I'm going with this and and um, yeah so I think that's more my creative well that's more my sort of imaginative exploration right, right. experimentation but also as i say the the crafting of the writing is a different kind of thing that's that's also creative i think right right and so when you write uh, uh after a first draft how much revision is there like for for me you know i write a first draft and then i i revise for a year i don't suspect it's the same for you no not for me i mean i think a lot of people do write in 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 a way where they revise a lot but as i say i mean maybe this is a bit boring really but i i tend no, to no, work, this is, this i tend to work exactly what i'm going to write and yeah and I, I i write and then when i've worked out what i'm going to write i basically uh write two hours a day 500 words an hour wow get a draft out in a week or two and then yeah i mean another couple of weeks going over it which yeah, I mean, can lead in new directions, but um, right. or you know, leads you to realise things didn't work out, and then you need another long walk. But <laughs> um, huh. but yeah, it's it's not really as I'm not really one of these writers who experiments on the page. In general, I I, I kind of experiment in the head and then right, right. and then stick it down when I I just can't do it otherwise. I just can't. No, that makes sense. Yeah, I don't want them. I just sit there and don't press any of the buttons in fact if i if i uh, had an idea of the philosophers that would be it somebody who thinks <laughs> as they as they take walks you know yeah uh, uh but i i don't want to keep you for long because i i uh you know i know you uh you're you're kind of suffering a, a sore throat right now but i just want to go ahead and make a segue into your basic idea of panpsychism yeah. and how that may solve the hard problem of consciousness yeah, so, I mean, in, in our standard way of thinking about things, consciousness exists only in the brains of highly evolved organisms and so exists only in a tiny part of the universe and, and only in very recent history compared to the history of the universe. Uh, but for the panpsychist, consciousness pervades the universe and is a fundamental feature of it. <clears throat> so, you know, a standard way of working this out would be that the, the, the basic building blocks of the physical world, perhaps electrons and quarks, have incredibly simple forms of experience. 
And then the very complex experience of the human or animal brain is, is somehow built up out of the simple experience of the brain's most basic mm -hmm. parts. So you can think of it as an alternative research program rather than, you know, we've tried for decades to try and explain consciousness in terms of utterly non-conscious processes in the brain. Yeah. Got precisely nowhere, in my opinion. Or, you know, we've made great discoveries about the brain, but right. in terms of this problem of consciousness, I don't think we've got anywhere. The alternative research program is, rather than explain consciousness in terms of non-consciousness, explain very complex human and animal consciousness in terms of simpler forms of consciousness, simple forms of consciousness, which are then postulated to exist at the, at the very fundamental level of reality. That's the so, basic. So right now we believe that, well, scientists believe, uh, not necessarily we, because I think everybody who understands science that aren't scientists are understanding just a metaphorical version of it, uh, you know, a very cartoon version of reality, like, you know, the way we understand the Big Bang and the way we understand entanglement, we, we attach a, a meaning to it if we're not scientists, if we don't really know the math. But one of the things that, uh, um, that I think uh, we understand about consciousness, or one of the things that we think about, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, the fundamental building blocks of reality of the universe are space, time, matter, uh, uh, light. But is your theory saying that one of the fundamental elements of reality is consciousness itself? Yeah, absolutely. But it's important to qualify that a little bit. When people first hear about panpsychism, they tend to think the view is that <clears throat> particles have their physical properties like mass, spin, and charge, and also these strange consciousness properties. Um, and this, the, the physicist Sabine Hossenfelder, who's a very interesting theoretical physicist, <clears throat> but very, had, had a blog post critiquing panpsychism a year or two ago, and she was interpreting it in this way. And she was rightly pointing out that this is not a good theory because physics shows no sign of these. Right non-physical consciousness properties in electrons. You know, they'd show up in our science if they were there. But she just misunderstood the view, right? The view is not, right. is not that the particles have their physical properties and these consciousness properties. The view is physical properties like mass, spin, and charge are forms of consciousness. Right. And right. how do we make sense of that? Well, Again, we're back to this Russell Eddington insight that actually physics doesn't tell us what mass is. Physics tells us what mass does. Right. It characterizes mass in terms of attraction, gravitational attraction and resistance to acceleration. It doesn't tell us what mass is. Mm -hmm. So that leaves open the theoretical possibility that mass just is a form of consciousness. So you, you said, is panpsychism isn't the view that Consciousness is also a fundamental feature of reality. Not quite. It's the view that it's the only fundamental feature of reality. <laughs> really, there is just consciousness. Um, when, you, when you do physics on this view, you are studying forms of consciousness. Right. Now, you don't know that's what you're doing. Right. Because, right. as I said, it's like doing physics is like playing chess when you don't care what the pieces are made of. You just care what they do. You care what mass, as a physicist, you care what mass does. You don't care what it is. You care what a, a field does. You don't care what it is. Right. This is a proposal about what matter is. 
it's it's made up of forms of consciousness. So it's a way of integrating the reality of consciousness into the scientific story. I, I really appreciate that you're bringing Eddington back into the conversation because I, I have a great deal of affection for him, uh, even if it's just for his insistence on testing Einstein's uh, theory of uh, uh, general relativity. Uh, and uh, and so just that's just kind of like a, a little side note there. Um, but I'm wondering how your approach differs from that which is uh, uh, proposed by Donald Hoffman in his case against reality. Uh, you know, that his idea that, you know, every, reality is essentially a desktop, uh, uh, desktop icons. What we see is, you know, are, are you questioning the reality itself and that, or is it, does it differ from that? Because it's it's really interesting uh, idea, you know, that that he proposes. But I'm not quite yeah. sure um, how others feel about that. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Um, yeah, just on Eddington. I mean, it was Eddington that made Einstein an overnight celebrity uh, with, with <clears throat> confirming his general. Have you theory. seen that movie? Have you seen that movie with Eddington and Einstein? Oh, it's is fantastic. It, What's yeah. that? Yeah, the, is it is it BBC? Is it? I think. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that's probably what caused me to uh, to have more affection for him because I've always knew about that. You know that he was the one that confirmed it, but it's really a good movie. Yeah, I was disappointed though. It said at the end, after this, it sort of said something like, after this, Eddington didn't really do much and just liked religion. And it, it's right. Sort of like, I, I, but but, but you see, you're bringing him back to the table, and that's awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, but yeah, Hoffman. So yeah, I've had. Um, I've had long conversation, about three hours long conversation with Donald Hoffman. Really? Actually. Wow. Um, an audio series Annika Harris is putting together should come out at some oh, point. Oh, yeah. I read her book on consciousness. Fantastic. I was hoping he would. Um, yeah, it's fantastic. She, well, she's contributing to this this volume I talked about in the Journal of Conscious Studies. I, w- I was hoping Hoffman would unfortunately couldn't, but some a couple of his collaborators are contributing. So putting his point of view, you know, comparing and contrasting with my own. So, I mean, you know, firstly, I think Hoffman's work is absolutely fascinating, you know, and, and I might have some disagreement, but we're really early days in, in the science of consciousness and it's good to get lots of different positions on the table. <clears throat> the difference between our views, I, I would characterize his view as a form of idealism, mm. uh, the, the philosophy. He doesn't tend to use that word very much, but I think really it is a form of, the philosophical view, idealism, whereby the physical world either doesn't exist or isn't fundamental. There is some more fundamental story beneath physical reality. Mm-hmm. And for him, it's a, it's a consciousness involving one. He thinks these networks of conscious agents. Uh, so as you say, in some sense, the, the physical world we seem to experience is an illusion. So my view is in a way closer to materialism. I think the physical world does really exist. It's it's physics gets it completely right, at least regards its structure, its mathematical structure. Um, I just think the physical world is constituted of consciousness. So the physical world is fundamental. Consciousness is fundamental. How can they both be true? Because they're the same thing. You know, going back to the, um, right, right. the the Philip Pullman quote, we can't remember. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> and another quote I like to get, another line I do actually, uh, matter is what consciousness does. 
So oh, I like you know, that. Yeah. Th this. Um, so. So 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 my views. So I think that's the difference between the two views. I think I, although his his view is fascinating and um, you know worth pursuing. I suppose I I I'm not sure what what the motivation is to think there's something deeper than physics. Right. Um, and, you know, it seems to me he's setting himself a Herculean task because he's going to have to, I mean, I'll, I'll talk so in this essay, the volume of essays, I'll write replies at the end. So I, I suppose that this is what I'll try to press. He will have to have the, these networks of conscious subjects that he thinks are at the fundamental level of reality. They will somehow have to um, capture the, the mathematicals, we need, we want to get out of that, the mathematical structure we get from physics, but also the fact that we are conscious minds that are human minds and animal minds experience that kind of three-dimensional world. And I mean, it's hard enough to get the equations of physics we already have. It's right. going to be a Herculean task to get this more fundamental story that, that, that yields the mathematical structure of physics yields our experience. That seems to me, you know, a Herculean task. I can't see it's, you know, it, and, I, and I don't see what the motivation is for pursuing that task. Why not just stick with what physicists are giving us, the structure, the mathematical structure physics are giving us, and then fill it out with consciousness. Uh, so, that, so that's the difference. He's, he, he thinks of this more, this deeper structure beneath physics, um, I'm not persuaded. Right. We need to, we need to postulate that. The other the other objection I pressed him. So he has these um, this idea that we should think evolution. Uh, we, you know, we should think the world is not as we take it to be because we've evolved for fitness, not for truth. Right, right. And so it's likely on that basis. You know, he thinks it's highly likely that we'll not be perceiving the world as it is. And what I put to him is, why doesn't that argument apply to our knowledge of other minds? You know, we, we've evolved an ability to make judgments about, you know, the experience that if other people are suffering or happy or, you know, we have instinctive, you know, my, 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 my baby at the moment, you know, as, as it instinctively understands uh -huh. right. the mental states of others. But it, it seems to me on Hoffman's view, we should think we should, we should distrust those, 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 um, we should think we're getting other people's experiences radically wrong. Maybe the, maybe we should think that we don't even know if other people have experiences. So there seems to me a sort of a tension in the view that anyway, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sounding, I'm sounding very harsh now, which is what. No, no, not at all. Not at all. He, you know, it seems like he likes uh, people to be harsh on him, actually. <laughs> That's what it's all about, you know, having a conversation and, yeah. you know, pressing each other and. Well, uh, I, I, I hope to get him on the show and, and have a, uh, he would be my first cognitive psychologist. Uh, <laughs> uh, but um, the book is Galileo's Error, Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness. It's incredibly readable, but, but that, uh, oh, I did, I just very noticed uh, Philip Pullman blurbed your book. I didn't even notice that until just <laughs> now. But uh, uh, as the first philosopher on my show, I'd like to, to thank you and to say that one of the things that that I'm beginning to realize as I dabble into uh, uh, lay neuroscience and lay physics, uh, and and even even uh, lay psychology, is ultimately science is returning to what philosophers have been saying for hundreds of years. <laughs> you know, ultimately, there's a lot of, uh, for example, uh, Hume 
in Hoffman. You know, and there's a lot of Kant and there's a lot of all these ideas that are just kind of being uh, uh, revealed mathematically and in science. And I think that, that's, that, that, that speaks very well for, for uh, philosophy. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, I think science is incredible. And I think we're going through a phase of history where, where people are you know, so blown away by how impressive it is, you <laughs> tend to think, that's everything. We've, we've got the answers. We've, we've got a way of, of uh, getting the truth. We might not have all the answers, but we know how to get them. But I think in all sorts of ways, not just with consciousness, science has been so successful because it set so many things on one side. Right. It just had a, a limited focused task. And that's really the secret of its success. It's success. But there's all sorts of things that don't fit into it. I mean, not just consciousness, but also um, mathematical objects like numbers and sets um you know these are things we know about um not through observation experiments right. but through kind of mathematical intuition facts about value if, if you believe in such things so i think there's things we know about not through the scientific method and so for my in my view that the job of the philosopher that i think we're slowly remembering is 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 is, is a job of synthesis taking all the things we know to be real from um, from from natural science, but also the reality of consciousness, the reality of numbers, facts about value or human agency, if you believe in such things, and synthesizing it all together in a single unified worldview, right. what, that kind of worldview building. And I think people are starting to say, yeah, we, you, you, you need to do that. It's, it's not an optional task. And um, and I think consciousness is is the one that's most evident to people, most presses people to the necessity of worldview building. You know, uh, one one more thing. I just have to say this: uh, when we were talking about following language, I know there have been cases where theoretical physicists have discovered equations that have led them to great insights that. Are, are new, new ways of seeing reality. Uh, and, uh, and that sometimes that language of math is so elegant that they have to believe it. And they'll, they'll spend billions of dollars, billions of billions of dollars in resources just to prove the math. I, I find that kind of beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, there are lots of, um, I mean, there's, there's a whole number of assumptions undergirding science that are not themselves scientifically testable. Um, right. For example, simple, theory. simple, <laughs> elegant theories are more like are more likely to be true. That's 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 a working assumption of science. Yeah, you know, absolutely. For any for any set of empirical data, there's always an infinite number of theories compatible with it. In principle, you scientists go for the simplest one, but yeah, you know, why should... Occam's razor? Is that what it's yeah. called? Occam's razor? Razor, yeah. William of Occam, great medieval philosopher. But why should simpler theories be more likely to be true than more complex theories? And, you know, that's not something, you know, so the, so also that the future will resemble the past. That's a, a working assumption of science that these laws, you know, it could be the laws that have operated up to now are about to stop and we'll get some new laws. But oh, yeah. we, assume, we, we assume that the future resembles it. So, and that there's an external world at all, you know? I mean, right. that we can trust our senses, that we're not in the matrix. So there's a whole load of assumptions we have to make um, 
Yeah, so, so, I mean, this kind of, I don't know, Richard Dawkins type view that just look at science, that'll tell us all the answers. I mean, there's all sorts uh-huh. of problems with that. But most obviously that there's a load of non-scientific assumptions that you have to make to get science off the ground. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think increasingly people are, are, start, are starting to see this. Yeah, you know, there are so many other things I could I could go off of just based on what you said, uh, but I'm going to go ahead and uh, let you go. I really appreciate you spending spending time with us here on Words on a Wire. The show will uh, uh, will air locally first, and then it'll be on our on our podcast. But before you go, I need to find out how I could find your podcast so uh, we could promote that and get people to listen to it. Oh yeah, Mind Chat. So it's a, a YouTube channel, Mind Chat, and um, yeah, I mean, I guess on hopefully on many podcast providers. And so yeah, so it's like it's a guy who thinks consciousness is everywhere, and a guy who thinks consciousness is nowhere. And we're <laughs> just what what once a month interviewing scientists and philosophers of consciousness. And um, well, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's it's important work that you're doing. So thank you, and thank you for. Galileo's Error. I love it. It's a great book. Oh, thanks so much, Tony. I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation. It's been a slightly different kind of <laughs> interview to the one I have with this sort of slightly literary angle and stuff. And that's, that's really fantastic. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Thank you. I'm Daniel Chacon. I would like to thank my guest, Philip Goff author of Galileo's Error, and one of the only full-time philosophers that I know. Most people get paid for working. This guy gets paid to think, and I love it. I'll see you next week on Words on a Wire. (laughs) 